Our scripture today is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 34. If you're able, please stand out of reverence for God's word. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you, and the page number is indicated in your bulletin. And also, there are some uh, Bibles out in the narthex on the table over by the bulletin board. Be sure to take one with you if you don't have one. So, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and last week we looked at that passage uh, just before this, where Jesus is now on the scene. He's preaching the Gospel. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God uh, is at hand. And this week, in this text, we're basically looking at one day in the life of Jesus. I'm sure that Simon, who's Peter, and Andrew and James and John thought this was going to be a typical Sabbath day, right? You get up in the morning, we go to church. That's what you do. So they went to synagogue, and then after the service, they went back to Simon's house, and they were going to have lunch, just like some of you guys are going to do today. And, you know, Simon and Peter, Andrew and James and John were right, thinking, this is just going to be a typical Sabbath day. And of course, it proved to be anything but a typical Sabbath day. It was unlike any Sabbath day that they had ever experienced because on this day, Jesus was with them and he went into the synagogue and with a word, he proclaimed things with an authority like no one had ever seen. And then with just a few words, like five words in the Greek, cast out a demon from a man who was demon-possessed there within the synagogue. And then after the service, what they thought probably was just going to be, you know, regular lunch, all of a sudden there's Peter's mother-in-law who's sick, and with a touch, Jesus healed her. And then at sundown, you know, like clockwork, uh, people are allowed to move around, and, you know, I can picture a knock on the door, and Simon opens up, and there's basically the whole town out there because they've heard about Jesus, and they're ready for him to speak and cast the darkness out of them. And they're ready for him to touch and bring healing. This very atypical day 
proved to be typical when it comes to the ministry of Jesus Christ. It proved to be a snapshot of what these three years of ministry of Jesus on earth would be like. On this day and throughout the course of his entire ministry, Jesus spoke with authority, an authority that brought the truth to light and that pushed back the darkness. And on this day, as with his entire ministry on earth, he touched people and brought healing. There was a compassion and a restoration that was itself a preview of what the kingdom of God would be like forever. You realize when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that what char- the results of what characterized this day would characterize every day for all eternity. Jesus spoke with an authority that was unlike any other authority. His touch brought healing that was itself not only a demonstration of his authority, but also a preview of the kingdom, and people missed it. They recognized that he taught with an authority that was beyond anything that they had ever heard, but they, they didn't submit to his authority. And, and they saw that his touch brought healing, but they didn't understand that the healing that was physical pointed to an ultimate healing that they all needed, whether they felt sick or not. They missed it. They didn't see that the kingdom that he was proclaiming was the kingdom that he was displaying throughout the course of his earthly ministry, that the authoritative teaching by which he brought the truth to light and pushed back the darkness and his compassionate healing ministry was itself a picture of what was to come for all who put their faith in him. They missed that. And so the question is, are are we missing that? As well. Again, we read this gospel, we read the gospels, and they're so familiar. But do we fail to see and submit to the authority of Jesus? And do we fail to see that the healings that are taking place here point to an ultimate healing that we all need, whether we feel sick or not? We have to ask ourselves if we're missing it as well. Another thing that challenges us in this passage, and maybe we're quick to want to gloss over, is this talk about demons being cast out, right? We touched on this a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus' experience in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and we talked a little bit about Satan there. And this isn't the last exorcism that's going to take place in the Gospel of Mark, so we'll be able to come back and talk more about this idea of activity taking place in the spiritual realm. This morning, I want to just talk a little bit. I want, I want to pick away, if you will, at perhaps some of the presuppositions that some of you have concerning reality, right? So this isn't so much going to be a biblical demonology this morning. That, that'll come. This morning, it's just going to be in this first point asking you to examine the plausibility of your belief that all that's real is what can be seen. That's materialism, the idea that the only thing that exists is the material realm, right? I want to challenge you in my first point this morning just to consider the plausibility of that belief and also consider as we work through the text and through the gospel of Mark as a whole, the plausibility of the belief that, in fact, there is more to what is real 
than what can be seen. So that'll be our our first point. My contention is going to be that there's more to what's real than can be seen. And then we're going to turn to the text, and we're going to look at Jesus' authority, his authoritative word by which he brings the truth to light, and he pushes back the darkness of evil itself. And then third, we're going to finish up by looking at the healing touch of Jesus that reveals both his compassion and his work of restoration. So, three points. First, there's more to what is real than what is seen. Second, we'll look at the authoritative word of Jesus. And then third, his healing touch. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together this morning and as we look at this passage, uh, we're, we're, we're thankful. We give you thanks as we do every Sunday that you have preserved your word for us. You have not left us to our own devices. You have not left us to our imaginations. You've revealed yourself to us and your plan for history to us. And so we ask that having revealed this to us, having preserved it for us, and having given us your spirit, you would give us eyes to see and hearts to believe that what's here is real. And it points to ultimate reality. And these are things not just to be believed, but embraced and hoped in because they're true. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, there's more to what's real than what can be seen. That's what the Bible teaches, and it's not. It runs in direct contradiction to what so many in our culture believe. You do remember that throughout history and around the world even to this day, it is not a point of contention that there is more to what is real than can be seen. But in our day and age, since, you know, the 1800s in the West, it has been very much a point of contention that there's more to what's real than can be seen. The idea of materialism is the idea that all that is real is that which can be seen. And so there's two things that I want to touch on that really challenge that notion, that belief, that presupposition that the only thing that's real are the things that can be seen. And the first is the mere fact of existence itself. Why is there anything at all? It's a fair question. It's a question that's met with a level of snickering and scorn when people ask that question. It's a fair question. Nothing cannot produce something. It's never been shown to be the case. Everything must come from something. That has consistently been shown to be the case. Something must be the source of everything else. Now, this is a silly example, and it is not a plea for help. But there is a dripping faucet in my bathroom shower. Again, it's a silly example. It's not a plea for help. If Wendy were here, she would say, actually, it's been dripping for a while, and so consequently, it is a plea for help. I will get to it. If she listens to this, she's in Chicago right now visiting our daughter. If she listens to this, honey, I will fix it. But for the sake of arguments, consider my dripping faucet in my bathroom shower. If I were to put a bucket under the dripping faucet in the shower, it would eventually fill up with water. That assumes a source. The source isn't the shower head itself. The source isn't the pipes that lead to it. The source is in some way Hemlock Lake through various uh, avenues to get to my place, but there's a source of the water. If the faucet, faucet isn't leaking, there's no water in the bucket. 
Now imagine there's no faucet. Imagine there's no pipes. There's no lake. There's just a bucket and an empty bathtub. Will it ever fill up? Now imagine there's no bathtub. Imagine there's no bucket. The argument is that given enough time, the bucket and the water that fills it will materialize. That something will come from nothing. Now, the rationale, again, it's a belief, it's not a fact. This hasn't been tested, it can't be proved. The argument is that given enough time, this will come to pass. That, that an infrequent regression of causes will lead to a first cause in which something comes from nothing. It's a belief. Its plausibility must be considered because it can't be proven. The idea you know, of existence kind of bound up with that is the fine-tuning of the universe argument, right? You've, you've heard this as well, that, that all the constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, and a host of other constants have to be the exact value that, there are, that they are in order for there to be organic life on Earth. So if you picture a you know, huge display with, with hundreds of dials, they all have to be set at the right setting in order for there to be life on earth. The probability of that has been set by some to be at something like 10 to the 100th power. And so there are one in a, there's one in a billion, billions of trillions chances that life should exist on this planet. MIT professor Alan P. Lightman points to the fine-tuning, he's an atheist, he points to the fine-tuning argument as causing what he calls science's crisis of faith. Now, there's a, there's a response, there's an there's a argument that's put forth as plausible to support this notion or this belief that the probability is actually high and not low. And that's the multiverse theory, or multi-universe theory, that there are multiple, infinite universes. And given an infinite number of universes, there is a high probability that within at least one of these universes, there is a planet on which life is possible because all the dials are set just right. Again, it's a belief. It can be proven. You can prove that liquid X boils at temperature Y at elevation Z. That can be demonstrated. It cannot be demonstrated that something comes from nothing. It can't be demonstrated that there are an infinite number of universes that diminish uh, the, uh, or increase the probability that life could exist, that all the dials could be set just right. These are beliefs. And it's on us to determine how plausible those beliefs are. Now the, you know, the rejoinder is, well, you, Mark, can't prove that God exists. And you're right. I can't. What I can hold up against materialism the idea that all that is real is that which can be seen is an argument that, in fact, there is more to what is real than that which can be seen. So not only do these arguments by which I would seek to undermine the plausibility of the materialist view point to the reality of the supernatural, but I think also just our very experience in life point to the reality of the supernatural. Think about the problem of evil. The problem of evil, the fact that there's evil in the world, is often held up as a, 
case against the biblical God. If the God of the Bible exists, a God who is all-powerful and all-loving, why would he permit evil in the world? That question can be turned around. You can ask the question, why are we talking about good and evil at all if there's no God that exists? Where does this notion of good and evil come from? Why is it that we think that there are some things that people definitely should not do no matter how much they think it is right? Where does that standard come from? Why is there this notion of, and a good one, a right one, of, of human rights if in the end the strong eat the weak? So even our experience of reality points to the existence of God or the existence of more than just the material world. It's not about proof, it's about plausibility. And so the question is, which belief is more plausible? The belief that all that's real is that which can be seen? Or the belief that there's more to what's real than can be seen? And my hope this morning, if you are here as someone who's not a Christian believer and, and you've maybe heard this kind of stuff before and you've laughed it off, is that you'll at least consider, A, that what you're accepting as fact is in reality a belief that can't be proven. And the burden is on all of us to examine our beliefs, beliefs such as the only things that are real are that which can be seen, or there's more to what's real than can be seen, that these are beliefs that need to be examined and in which we need to determine which is the greater plausibility. I just want you to be open to that as we talk about these things this morning, and then I hope you'll come back as we continue to work our way through Mark and get this picture of life on earth through this Jesus who the demons who exist point to as the Holy One of God. In Mark, as with all the Bible, you get this veil torn back between the seen and the unseen realm. Chapter after chapter, book after book in the Bible tells us there is more to what is real than can be seen. So second, let's turn to the text now and let's consider this Jesus whose word is, she, is, is seen to be authoritative. Jesus speaks with authority. And two things happen. We see it in the synagogue. His word brings truth to light. And his word pushes back the darkness. So let's take a look. First, verses 21 and 22 Mark writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, again, you can actually, if you were to go visit this area, you would see that there is a uh, synagogue that still is standing from the 4th century. And excavations beneath it have shown that there was a synagogue upon which it was built. Most likely the synagogue that existed in Jesus' day. It's there. It's a real place. <laughs> and in this real place, Jesus went in. Now, it was not uncommon for people to be given, men to be given an opportunity to stand up and, uh, or actually to sit down and teach. 
in the synagogue. And so that's happening. There are these scribes who were considered experts in the law. They expounded on the writings that are in the Old Testament, and then Jesus had an opportunity to speak. Now, what these scribes would do is basically just say what other commentators said about these ancient writings. Jesus did something else entirely. Now, Mark doesn't get into it. Mark doesn't really so much focus at all on what Jesus said. He just focuses on his authority to say what he said. But in Luke, Jesus is in a different synagogue, in a different town, and he says things like this. And I have a hunch that this is the kind of stuff that he said in all the synagogues he visited. So this is Luke chapter 4. This is the synagogue in Nazareth. And this is what we read. As was his custom, Jesus' custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which is where the the rabbis did. They sat in order to teach. And rather than just kind of saying what other people said about Isaiah, Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He spoke with an authority that no one else demonstrated. He brought truth to light. This truth that was in Isaiah, I'm telling you, is being fulfilled right now. He brought the truth to light, and they didn't see it. They didn't see it. They marveled at his authority. Wow, such power, such authority. This is like a word from God, and yet they did not submit to his authority. They didn't believe, most of them anyway, from what we can tell, his word still brings truth to light. Today, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the vision of joint and marrow. It exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, it still brings truth to light. Have you submitted to it? Have you submitted to him. It amazes me that the demons in this passage hear and submit. All right, Jesus speaks and the demons flee. We're going to talk about that in a second. It is amazing to me that we hear and we don't submit. Now, on one hand, you know, Jesus made us with that capacity to be reasoning souls, to, to think and make real decisions. But just stop for a moment and ask yourself, if even the demons... Submit to the authoritative word of Jesus. Why shouldn't I? His word still brings truth to light. His word also pushes back the darkness. Take a look at verses 23 through 26. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him, and the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And so, you know, Jesus, 
we're picturing, like he did with Luke 4. He, maybe he's read some passage of the Old Testament in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he sits down. Maybe he's teaching. Maybe it's when he's done. But all of a sudden, in response to the authoritative word of Jesus, someone stands up, someone who is possessed by a demon, and the demon cries out, I know who you are, and I know why you're here. That's terrifying. I know who you are. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. You see, even there, there's a recognition that this is the God-man. This is the incarnate Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. I know who you are. And I know why you're here. Kingdom of God is breaking in. It is pushing back the darkness, the darkness of evil, the darkness of sin and suffering, the darkness of hell itself, the darkness of the demonic realm is being pushed back with the coming of the king. And the unclean spirits, also translated by Mark elsewhere, demons, they see, they believe. And then with authoritative word, Jesus says, be quiet and be gone. And they flee. Now again, over the course of the next several weeks, there'll be more that we can talk about when it comes to what the Bible teaches about demons. But for now, let's just recognize that as Christians, we tend to fall in one of two camps, both of which are extremes. On the one hand, we tend to act as if the spiritual realm doesn't even exist. We rarely think about it. We won't attribute anything in this world to demonic activity. At the other extreme is a camp that attributes everything in this world to demonic activity. In some ways, in silly ways, in other ways, in really sad and tragic ways. So the idea that there's a spirit of depression or there's a spirit of cancer is just a fallacy. It's not there in the Bible. The idea that a Christian person can be possessed by Satan is a falsehood. It is not there in the Bible, quite to the contrary. And yet these beliefs will keep sincere Christians either bound in a prison, in a prison in which they no longer exist, a spiritual prison, or prevent them from pursuing the common grace medical treatment that God provides because they're convinced that their problem is from the spiritual realm. So both of these are extremes that need to be avoided. What does the Word of God teach? The Word of God teaches that there is an adversary called the devil. He has no more power on earth than what God permits or what people allow, either wittingly or unwittingly. Our adversary is a created being. He is an angel who has fallen. He rebelled against God and he took a whole army of fallen angels with him. Though he was defeated at the cross, he still seeks to destroy. He cannot snatch a believer away. He cannot possess a Christian, but he can seek to persuade a Christian of things like God can't be trusted. 
God is not good. That's exactly what he was trying to do with Jesus in the wilderness. Or those Christian brothers and sisters around you, they can't be trusted. They're not good. Or things like, you know what? When you're wronged, it's better to strike back. Hit back twice as hard as you were hit. Don't seek to forgive and be reconciled. These are the kind of things that our adversary can and does say to us. We know from the Gospel of Mark, we know from the book of Acts, and we know from church history that wherever the kingdom of God advances into new territory, there is a demonic response. So you see it in Mark. You see it in Acts. Go read Acts chapter 16. You read it again throughout church history. Whenever there are dispatches from the missionary front, you read about this kind of activity. The fact that we don't experience it here today in the West, that our brothers and sisters in the UK or in Europe don't experience this, is not because the West is so gospel-saturated that there's no room for the demonic. To the contrary, more likely, it's that Satan knows that here, he really has nothing to fear. The Bible also tells us that as Christians, we have weapons with which to wage war against this demonic foe. There are weapons that you can read about in Ephesians chapter 6. There is armor that we can put on, and there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the authoritative word of God by which the enemy can be rebuked. Jesus' word comes with authority. His word still brings truth to light. Have you seen it? And have you submitted to him? Jesus' word still pushes back the darkness. It pushes back the darkness of demonic forces, and he has fit us with weapons to take our stand. His word pushes back the darkness of shame and the darkness of guilt and the darkness of evil and the darkness of sin and all these things, the, the darkness of societal sin, the, the darkness that lies behind the impulse to murder and to steal and to do all these things. God's word pushes back that darkness as well. Jesus' word comes with authority his touch brings healing. Let's look at this third and finally. Take a look at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. If you were to go to Capernaum now, to this region, you would see not only a fourth century synagogue that is built over a synagogue that existed in Jesus' day, you will also see next to it a church that was constructed in the fourth century on top of what has been shown to be a house church from the first century. Likely, Peter's house. It's there. And immediately he left the synagogue and maybe went next door to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. We see here Jesus' compassion and his intention to restore. Compassion and restoration. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus casts out demons, he does it with his words. 
And whenever Jesus heals, he does it with his touch. His touch. The same hand that took Simon's mother-in-law and lifted her up and healed her. It's the same hand that knelt and uh, drew in the dirt when the woman was held up as accused of adultery. It was the same hand that held up the bread and the cup at the Last Supper. It was the same hands that were nailed to the cross. Jesus became man. He touched people and he healed them. And so the challenge to us as the church, as followers of Jesus Christ, is are we willing to do more than just speak words to people? As those who have been touched by Jesus, are we willing to touch others? You, know, you read through the Gospels, not just Mark, and you just you notice the way that Jesus sees people. He really sees them. He doesn't gloss over them. He doesn't brush by them. He sees them. He speaks to them. He touches them. Are we displaying that same compassion to the world? Are we willing to go into place? The church has done this historically. The church in the first century was famous for doing this. They went where no one wanted to go in order to touch them. Are we... Oh. Please recognize I say this with uh, recognition that I'm not willing to do what I'm about to say. Are we willing to go to Wuhan? The church in the first century would pack their bags and go. That's what they did whenever plagues hit the Roman Empire. They went. They didn't flee. Everyone else was running in the other direction. They went in. They cared for the sick and the dying. The people that were left outside the house to die, they brought in. The babies that were left on the scrap heap, literally because they weren't wanted, they brought in. The church has always moved toward need and was willing to touch. And we need to be challenged. We need to ask, within our reach, are we willing to touch? And Jesus' touch brought restoration. You know, don't, don't gloss over what happens. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill, verse 30, verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This is not Simon and Andrew and James and John and Jesus saying, oh, good, now we can eat. You realize that, don't you? The same word serve here is the same word that's described to, to describe what the angels did to Jesus in the wilderness. They ministered to him. They served him. Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. God hardwired us to serve. To be made in the image of God is to be made to find our greatest fulfillment in loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. To serve is to be human. And Jesus restored this woman to serve. And so as we think about what it means to be a Christian, do we think about that as part of the reason why we're saved? 
Oh, Jesus saved me so I can go to heaven when I die. Yes, Jesus saved you to pick up the basin and the towel and to serve. Jesus saved you to live a sacrificial life in his name. Out of love for him because of how much he's loved you. We're called to submit to the authoritative teaching of Jesus and then go speak in his name, his word, to others. As those who have been, by God's grace, through the power of the Spirit and his word, touched by Jesus, we're called to take his healing to touch to others. We'll talk about healing as well (laughs) in the next few weeks. But to go where people don't want to go and touch. To say things that people don't want to hear for their good. Because the word of God and the touch of God brings life. You know, the passage ends, and so we'll end here as well. With the whole city gathered together at the door, Jesus came out and healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He wouldn't permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus knew whose testimony he could trust. It wasn't theirs. And yet, remarkably, Jesus says concerning us, go, speak, teach, instruct, serve. Have we recognized that that's our calling? That's our kingdom mission. This isn't just me and you as individuals having our sins forgiven so we can go to heaven when we die, as awesome as that is. It's about you and I living out as a preview of the coming kingdom what it means to be those who have submitted to the authoritative word of God, who are agents under him pushing back the effects of the fall and going where no one else wants to go in order to touch those whom he loves. Let's pray. Jesus, we do pray that you would help us to live faithfully in light of what is real. Lord, we we go through our days thinking that our typical days are, in fact, just that, typical of reality. Help us to believe because your word attests to it that there's more to what is real than what we can see. Lord, your word is indeed authoritative. Help us to submit to it. Help us to take up your word that we might resist the onslaught of spiritual foes. And help us to take your compassionate touch to the nations and to our neighbors. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.